0: Well, good morning. I suppose if you can have Christmas in July, you can have Easter in November, right? Why not? Uh, Well, it's good uh, as we're coming now to uh, second to last sermon here in the book of Matthew. Well, obviously, we have the Great Commission left next Sunday, but it is good to be with you, good to sing, good to hear uh, the Bloom's testimony and, uh, and good to proclaim the, the glorious good news of the resurrection together uh, this morning. Well, in the 90s, uh, when I was in my prime, if you want to put it that way, uh, you may remember the No Fear shirts. I don't know. Kyle, did you have one of those? No, he didn't. He wasn't cool enough to. Okay. Uh, but I had No Fear shirts, and they are rather popular going up, and they they aimed at promoting a certain, you get it, fearlessness, tenacity, particularly in the realm of sports. And so you'd have this shirt and say, no fear on it, uh, and it might have uh, its own little virtue that it would also uh, have. And some of these that I remember that were very fond of me, second place is the first loser, Yeah. If you can't win, don't play. And then my favorite, which I pass down to my children even now, no pain, no gain. Right? They hear me whenever they're they're crying on the soccer field. I'm like, no pain, no gain. Let's go. Uh, so uh, this is what uh, those no fear shirts for trying to instill. And by living or wearing one of these, you're you're essentially trying to. Uh, live up to a certain lifestyle, I guess, that uh, you have no fears and that you would face any challenge set before you. While these shirts were pretty cool for a decade, uh, apparently the the company couldn't live up to the hype because it went bankrupt. Uh, And so those shirts don't exist anymore. They weren't able to rise to the challenge, I guess. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there's a certain sense you, you wear it and, uh, it, and hopefully it would meant more than just a, a t-shirt. You could actually uh, live out uh, that the virtue, if you will, of that shirt. And so the question I have for us today is, is uh, as Christians, do we live up to the hype? Uh, do we have fear? We claim that in Christ, we have nothing to fear, and that's true. We sing in Christ alone, for instance. We didn't do it today, but maybe another time. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Is this something that's true in our lives, or is it just merely something that we might put on a T-shirt? Say, we have no fear. We're in Christ. And maybe it's something that we just... Uh, remind ourselves and try to convince ourselves that there's nothing to be afraid of, but maybe we we are afraid. Or is there a legitimate basis for what we say? Is there a legitimate reason for not living in fear? And 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 if so, what what fears have we overcome, or what fears have been overcome by it? This morning, I hope we'll see that our basis for not living in fear is actually found in the resurrection. The resurrection for us, brothers and sisters, is a game changer. (laughs) It really is. It's like the ultimate trump card. Resurrection, boom, throw it down. It's a game changer because it secures us victory. It's like playing a game and you, you already know you win. Uh, there's there's nothing to fear. No decision, in in some sense, can can mess it up. Victory is secured for you. So if that is true, if the resurrection secures victory for all who are in Christ, well, guess what? We can follow Christ with confidence, no matter what life brings us. That's the essence of the Christian saying, "I have no fear." It's not like your personal slogan. Uh, that somehow you're going to rise above every personal challenge that comes your way, but no matter what challenge comes your way, you don't have to fear because you're in Christ. You have the resurrection trump card, if you will. Well, the heart of our passage comes in chapter 28. We we read chapter 27, and in in 27 28, and our passage is kind of booked in booked in by the uh, the burial and then the cover up, if you will. But in the center. We come and we see two precious women, don't we? See two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other, <clears throat> the other Mary. But we see here in their encounter at the tomb, what a glorious sight that must have been. What a, what a, a change of, of expectation. A glorious one. But we see that at the tomb, they 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 their encounter with the angel. What the angel say? Do not be afraid, right? Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. I love that. Did you expect anything different? He's done exactly what he said. And so as they run to go tell the disciples, then again, but this time they meet Jesus himself who, who says, Essentially, the same thing. Do not what? Be afraid. So we see here, brothers and sisters, that because of the resurrection, we truly have nothing to fear in this life or the next. Every threat against the disciple of Christ has been vanquished. It's been overcome. Why? So that you can follow Christ, even through the valley of the shadow of death, and fear no evil, okay? Why? Because he has already gone through the valley and stands on the other side. He's like a good shepherd who comes and walks with us because he knows the path through death itself because he's been there and he's come out on the other side. And so, brothers and sisters, today, really, as this passage leads you into the Great Commission, uh, what's surprising is how much kind of the emphasis is on be prepared to follow Jesus now. (laughs) There's nothing to fear. This guy resurrects the dead. Do you want to come with him? Yeah, sign me up. That's kind of the idea. You, You want to not fear death or evil? Come follow Jesus. Those are the things that we do not have to fear. And, and here in the text, really, where I want to draw out for us is, is three areas that you no longer have to fear because of the resurrection. The first one's obvious, the fear of death. The second one is the fear of judgment. And the third one is the fear of men. Let's start with the first, the fear of death. We find ourselves here in chapter 27, beginning verse 57, that Christ has yielded his life on the cross. He has he borne the sins of his people, he, is, he has died. And when we come here in these opening verses, 57 through 61, we see that preparations are now being made for his burial. And there are lots of lessons that could be drawn out of here. We could easily explore Joseph of Arimathea, thinking of the themes of his, of his wealth and how he even he doesn't fear men. And he goes and identifies with Christ and offers to care for him. But we, we could explore that. And I guess in some sense, I, I did a little bit. Um, but one of the primary reasons we see this, uh, this, this uh, account, it's like Joseph comes out of nowhere. We never see him again. He comes in, he helps bury Jesus, and we never see him again. It is interesting. At the very beginning, we have a Joseph who, who seems to be there to secure Christ and his moment of of uh, weakness his moments, moment of vulnerability as a child and now you have another joseph who's with him in his moment of weakness caring for him you see god's providence from beginning to end here with two josephs that you see for a moment and then they seemingly just disappear lots we could say but here what we need to see is that jesus truly did die that is the point that is being made here jesus truly died He was truly buried. Jesus didn't merely pass out and then get resuscitated in some sense. It's interesting that we have here cover-ups already being planned uh, in this text, and they're the same things you see on the History Channel at Easter every year, right? It's the same stuff. He probably fell asleep and passed out of pain. They thought he was dead and he woke back up, or his disciples stole him. It's the same lie that was being told even in Matthew's day. But what Matthew is trying to reiterate to us is that Jesus truly did die, and he was truly buried. And because he was truly buried, and because he was truly dead, guess what? He truly tasted death for everyone. Well, having recounted the events of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, we're introduced to this wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And it's interesting, he just says he's a disciple. He was a disciple of... Of Jesus, and Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus so that he could bury him. Why, why would he do that? Certainly, he wanted to give him a proper burial. What you might not realize is that um, the Romans did have an agreement with the Jews. They they didn't want dead bodies laying around, and so they had mass graves. I mean, similar today. There there's means of disposing of dead bodies. They usually, cremate them, and, and that's it. There's a there is kind of a, a government way of handling dead bodies, but but think about what Joseph does here. I mean, this the act of charity here is pretty extraordinary. He willingly says, "I'll take care of the burial preparations. Not only will I take care of them, I'll give them mine." It's like going and buying your own burial plot and then seeing someone else in need and saying, "Sorry, honey, he's going to be next to you, not me." You know. <laughs> I'm not going to need it. I don't care. That's what Joseph does. This act of providing a tomb for a stranger is an exceptional act of charity. Uh, in a sense, it, it's of the same level of, of, of the woman who comes and had poured the the great costly perfume upon Jesus to prepare him for burial. It's a newly cut tomb of which Joseph's entire family would have used. I mean in, in essence, it is, hey, I've recently got my burial plot taken care of. He can have it. And what a fitting picture this is. What a fitting picture here is that Jesus takes the place of another man's grave. Isn't that the picture of the gospel put before us? He takes the place of another person's tomb because he died for the salvation of another. And while Joseph's motives here are truly to honor Christ, it may simply just be, I want to give him a proper burial, I'll take care of him, let me have his body, let's not just put him in a mass grave. But in God's providence here, something remarkable is happening. God is making the power of the resurrection even more clear, more profound. See, because of Joseph's of extreme charity, Jesus' tomb will be clearly identified. There's no mistaking. It's not like he's going to be thrown into some mass grave and you might lose the body in some sense. The Lord is preserving the body so that we know when the body's gone, it was the same body, right? That's what's going on. But it wasn't merely Joseph's care that would be used by the Lord. But even here, as we go on, we see even the, the religious leaders' hatred toward him. It, it keeps going, right? We move on in verses 62 and following, and we come to the next day. It's the Sabbath day, Matthew tells us. In just a little bit of a jab, what, what should you be doing on the Sabbath day, religious leaders? You should be resting. You should be honoring the Lord. But no, they're working very hard, aren't they? They are working very hard. They're working in overtime, if you will, to squelch any further belief that Jesus is the Messiah. See, they went to Pilate, gathered before him, and they said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, verse 63, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go in and steal it. And the last fraud be worse than the first. You see what they're, they're sticking with? He was already a fraud, but if people begin to think that this guy actually rose from the dead, we got, it, we got more trouble on our hands. And so they're working conspiracy theory. They're, they're, they're working up a cover-up. They're working, in some sense, to squelch any hope of this news of the resurrection getting out. But here's what the Lord is doing. Guess what? We got more witnesses at the tomb. More unlikely that his disciples could steal him. Everything is working according to plan. They're actually building the case for the resurrection. Do you see that? They're making it more clear that Jesus could have only been raised from the dead. And so no one could keep Jesus in the grave. Do you see that? Not the religious leaders, not the soldiers, nor the power of death itself. Rather, Jesus is identified here as he's buried. He's identified with you and me in our greatest moment of weakness. He identifies us with us in death. So as the writer of Hebrews says that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery writer of Hebrews, understands the significance of him being buried so that through death he might deliver us from the power of death so that we no longer fear it any longer. This is why, as Pastor Brian read from 1 Corinthians 15, and, and we say in the Apostles' Creed, we confess Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The burial part is the, I, that I, the sense in which he truly died reminds us that he was buried. On our behalf, because of the resurrection, Christ is our hope that, guess what? That just as the pangs of death could not hold him, guess what? If you are in Christ, it cannot hold you either. Death cannot hold you. It is impossible for those in Christ to be held by death anymore. So can you see here, because of the resurrection, if you know Christ, there is no fear in death. And if there's no fear in death, then what's keeping you from living for Him? This is as the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ actually, or I mean, Paul actually understands. Yeah, to live, man, I can just live for Christ. And if I die, it's just gain. It's just gain. Death now becomes victory. We cross the finish line. It has no... Stain on us. It has no grip on us. We finish the race. Well, how is it that we can claim death as our gain? Well, this leads us into the third or the second fear because the resurrection also delivers us from the fear of judgment. The writer of Hebrews states, and just as it was appointed for man to die once and then the judgment, so Christ, having Then offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is a glorious truth. The writer of Hebrews begins by stating, uh, uh, I guess, a general known fact. It's appointed that every person will die, and after death, you face judgment. But for those in Christ, No judgment. Because when he comes, the day of judgment comes, guess what? He saves you. He saves you from that. He's not here to deal with your sin. He's already dealt with it on the cross and through death. No, when he comes, he comes to save, not to judge, if you're in Christ. So now, notice, uh, we come, verse 1 of chapter 28, now we come to this day after the Sabbath. This is Sunday. So Matthew's moved us from Monday, day of preparation, Saturday, the Sabbath, now we're on Sunday, which is the third day, right? And we see even in this account the very fact of how this goes down that God has not given us over to judgment. We see here Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We find out, actually, back in chapter 27, she's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, we're not really sure who this Mary is, to be honest. Uh, It may be this is Jesus' mother and kind of a a different way of identifying her. We do know she was at the cross because Jesus actually tells John, take care of my mother, she's now your mother. So there's a sense in which maybe this is Mary, maybe it's another Mary. Regardless, we have two Marys here, and and Matthew didn't think it was that important for us to know exactly who she was. But they arrive at the tomb. Likely, uh, other Gospels tell us they're coming to to bring um, uh, perfume and other um, things to uh, cover up the stench of death. We read here, Matthew doesn't tell us that. He just tells us what occurs when they arrive. And behold, verse 2, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and called and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Oh, what a sight that must have been. You're, you're coming to, to the, the grave. There's an earthquake. We've had a couple of those happen already. Now there's another earthquake, and an angel starts to descend from heaven and sits on the stone like, ta-da. And it's kind of, I imagine this being kind of like elf on the shelf, just kind of sitting there. Obviously, it's a little more terrifying than that, but... But you see, the point, this isn't the resurrection. This is the declaration of the resurrection. Jesus is already raised. At dawn on the first day, at some point by dawn, Christ had raised. And and the whole uh, event is, is not to let Jesus out of the tomb. It's to let us in. Let us see that Jesus indeed has been raised. Now, the irony here is pretty strong. What happened to these guards? Well, we see the appearance of these of this angel. There, there was more than one, but Matthew only focuses on one. Verse 3, this angel had the appearance like lightning and his clothing like white as snow. And for fear, these guys still fear. Verse 4, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now here's the irony. These who are supposedly alive to watch the dead are now as if they are dead and the one who's supposed to be dead is actually alive. Roles have switched. I don't know if they just passed out, knocked out, or if they're just frozen in fear. They're like they're dead. While earthquakes, angels, and lightning are actually associated with judgment. Think about Matthew 24. Angels, lightning, earthquakes, judgment. Here. It's not judgment which the angel announces. Rather, it's that Jesus has been raised. Right? It's good news. If God wanted to leave us in judgment, guess what? He wouldn't have announced that Jesus had been raised. He wouldn't have opened the tomb. He wouldn't have made the preparation so that we could find. None of this would have happened. All of this is revelation, so that you would know that Jesus has a defeated death and he has been raised from dead. He doesn't keep you in secret. He sends his angels to tell these women the good news. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to tell the other disciples who are then going to lead the church in spreading this around the world. The resurrections, my friend, the resurrection, my friend, is the declaration that judgment for sin has been made and the offering has been accepted. Everything that we saw last week about the cross and what occurred on the cross, the resurrection is the Lord's stamp of approval. It is done. I accept it. Paul writes this in Romans 4. He says, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does he mean? We trust in Christ's resurrection, which presupposes his death and burial. It'll be counted to you as righteousness. What does that mean? It's an accounting term. It means though your bank account is negative infinity, we're going to count it to you that it's positive infinity. Righteousness has been given to you. Though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, though that is what you truly are, if you put your faith in the resurrection, it will be counted to you as if you are righteous. And this is all because of, the, of Christ who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's just the verb form of made righteous. The resurrection is the basis by which you and I are made right with God no longer have to face his wrath. It's the basis. The resurrection says life. Life. And you share in that resurrection with him. This truth is beautifully communicated when Jesus appears to these two women. Come to verses 8 through 10. We see in verse 8, so they departed quickly. They do exactly what the angel told them to do with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, oh, let's just stop there. I love just the reality of what's truly happening here. Don't be afraid. They run away now with fear and joy. Isn't that how it truly is? Yeah, we know we shouldn't fear. We're going to know these truths today, and I pray that we will walk out of here, reality is, with fear and joy reminding ourselves the joy is more real than what we feel, right? There are times we do fear death. There's times that our conscience condemns us, but we have to come back to the gospel over and over again and be reminded of the joy that is ours in Christ. We have to come to Jesus and be reminded. These women they come mixed with emotion and and Jesus meets them and this is Rather anticlimactic. Greetings. So he says, be the equivalent of saying, Hi, how's it going? It's just a normal greeting. Obviously, the response is overwhelming. I mean, in some sense, you've seen those accounts where a father comes back from deployment, military deployment, and they come in some setting with a, a young child. Uh, Maybe other karate, I've seen some of those. I saw one lately where the the boy's just sleeping and the dad comes to wake him up, but he takes him a while because he doesn't realize, he doesn't have a category anymore, dad would be home. He just thinks it's his mom. But it's his voice. Hi, my son. Flings himself out of bed. Wraps his arm around his dad. He heard his voice. That's what happens here. They're running. They see a man. All he has to do is speak. Hi. Greetings. And they cling to him. text says that they ran and they, they grabbed his feet and they worshiped. Matthew's also telling us here two realities. Jesus is both human. He's not a ghost. They grabbed his real feet. But they worship because he's God. You see these twin truths—the reality of the mystery of Christ right before us—and it seems as if Jesus now gives them the same message that the that the angels did. Do you see it? He says, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." Clearly, Matthew's wanting us to get to the next passage where Jesus meets them in Galilee, but but there is a significant difference in what Jesus says. First, what the angels say. The angel says, go tell his disciples. Jesus says, go tell my brothers. Now you might think, well, that's not significant. Well, I think it is. Consider Jesus' warm address message, if you will, that they no doubt would be taking to the remaining 11. for the most part, most of them have not been there. They've abandoned him. It's been a rough night for the disciples in the faithfulness test, hasn't it? Real rough night. Right now, they're hiding. These ladies aren't. Joseph and Arimathea wasn't. Just a normal disciple. These are the inner circle that can nowhere to be found. Since the cross, the remaining lot. 11 disciples are nowhere to be found. And and this is in stark contrast to these women. Guess, we can go back to chapter 27, verse verse 55. There were also many women there looking from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. They were more faithful. Ministering to him, among whom are Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They're there at his death. When we saw Joseph of Arimathea, we skipped this verse, but verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite of the tomb. They were there at his burial. And now it's Sunday, and they're there at the resurrection. They never leave his side. Compared to the disciples, these women are unbelievably faithful. The disciples, not so much. Jesus honors these women, doesn't he? They get to see the resurrection. They are actually the ones who get to take the message to the disciples. They have to hear it through another first, which is actually how we have to hear it, right? The message that these disciples are going to preach and declare and build the church upon, and the church is going to be hearing it through the message of another, the disciples have to do the same. They hear it through the message of these sweet, precious women. What's evident here in that Jesus calls them his brothers is, guess what? Though they have not been faithful, he remains faithful to them. You're still my brothers. The resurrection is about restoration. Do you see that? It's not about judgment. It's not further judgment. It's about restoring everything that has been broken. And their relationship, from the disciples' standpoint, has been broken, hasn't it? No doubt, Peter, last we saw him, went out weeping, knowing he was a complete failure. And Jesus says, trump card, resurrection, everything is made new. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you, you're looking at your life and saying, I, I'm not faithful to my creator. I have not trusted in Christ. I have not been faithful. I have lived in gross sin in my life, or I have just been faithless. He says I was raised. Come to me, and you will not face judgment. Come to me. Jesus was raised to reconcile us to Himself. And so if death and judgment are no longer threats against us, then surely there's no need to fear men, right? While our passage doesn't explicitly tell us that there's no need to fear men, I think it's subtly put in here through the, uh, I guess, uh, fruitless plans that are being made by the religious leaders. Twice in our passage, we have the religious leaders gathering together to take counsel. Uh, you see the first one in, uh, in, in, in verse 63, or excuse me, 62. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now we see it again. Verse 11, While they were going, it's Jesus and the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, there it is, they they gathered together to take counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, hey, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep or while you were asleep. And this scene is quite astonishing, isn't it? The soldiers come and tell you, hey guys, he rose from the dead. (laughs) You'd think they'd say, oh man, we messed up. No, they doubled down on it. Okay, we don't care anything about that. Wait just a moment. Let us take counsel together. Now, Matthew has been showing us this kind of scheming. It happened again and began in chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. The perceptive listener knows that this language uh, reminds you of Psalm 2. What does Psalm 2 say? The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) I mean, what? You're going to take counsel? You're going to cover up the resurrection? Oh, you think you're going to destroy my Messiah? Good luck. Oh, this just popped in my head. I don't know if you remember, if you ever watched the glorious movie, The Dark Knight, Batman movie. There's that scene where uh, one of Bruce Wayne's employees kind of figures it out. Figures out, oh, Bruce Wayne is Batman. And he gets all this evidence, and he comes to um, um, uh, Morgan Freeman's character, and he basically lays it all before him. Got him. Morgan Freeman says, so let me get this straight. You think your employer at night runs around killing all his enemies and anyone who opposes him, and you want to blackmail him? Good luck. That's what he said. That's kind of the idea. And yet they figure it out. He's raised from the dead. Hey, guys, we're going to pay you off. I'm going to pay you off. What we see here is that they're not interested in truth. They're not interested in reality. They pay off the soldiers so that they they can cover this up because what they really are interested in is that they want to remain the Lord of their own life. And that's the same as for people today. It doesn't matter that Jesus is raised from the dead. They don't want him as Lord. People reject Jesus because they don't want him to rule their life. And the sinful heart would rather suppress the truth and unrighteousness and believe a lie than bow a knee to Jesus. Humanity wants to be the Lord of their own lives. But what we see here is, nevertheless, the plans of the wicked will not ultimately succeed, do they? They're not able to keep it covered up. I mean, in some sense, yeah. But in a larger sense, how did we know? (laughs) We're here. And we know the news of the resurrection. They weren't able to keep it wrapped up. And so we see here, That even if the world were to try and kill us and they succeed, guess what? Our God will raise us just as He raised Christ. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Resurrection is a game changer because we can look back to the cross. That's why we gather every Sunday morning. I don't know about you. Just because I'm the the preacher, guess what? My heart wanders. It drifts. I, 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 I need Sunday morning. I need to be with you. I need to hear you sing. I need to hear testimony. I want to be under the word myself. I need my heart to be lifted up, to be reminded of these truths, that the resurrection means I don't have to fear. We can look back to the cross and see that even the worst active men in human history and all their scheming couldn't win. So we know that Christ, He indeed will build His church, won't He? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because death didn't prevail against Christ the first time. See, our confidence, brothers and sisters, is not in ourselves, is it? When we look inwardly, we know, I'm nothing. We'll be like the disciples running. our confidence is in Christ and his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The same power which raised Christ from the dead, guess what is at work in you who believe? Same power. And so for this reason, we're no longer slave to our sin. We're, We're aware of our sin, and now we're in the battle. We're in the fight because actually we've become slaves of righteousness. That is the power of the resurrection that is awakened in your heart. And we can have confidence that even as death threatens us in this life, that Christ is working out His purposes, even in our suffering, even in our death, to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory when He comes. The Christian cannot lose, my friend. We do not lose. Because Christ has secured the victory by his resurrection. Amen. let's go to the risen Savior in prayer. Jesus, we can come to you, we can call upon your name because you aren't in the tomb. Not only you were raised, but you were ascended, and you sit at the right hand of God the Father, and you are presently putting every enemy under your feet and one day you will finally and forever put death under your feet. It will be the death of death. And For us who are in Christ, for us who have turned from our sins, not trusted in our own selves, but trusted this glorious message that through faith we can be united to you and share in the power of the resurrection. Lord, you'll put our enemies under our feet. Even our sin that Afflicts us, Lord. It will not be able to afflict us anymore. And every hurt, every tear will be wiped away. You will make all things new. Even this whole creation, you will resurrect it. There will be more, no more death. Certainly, no judgment, and no men to fear. For we'll see you face to face. For we'll be like you. Holy in your presence, enjoying your creation as you intended it. Join the blessings and the benefit of a sinless, curseless world. Lord, I pray for those who are here today, who, who right now your spirit is working in their heart, plaguing them, and maybe right now their conscience is condemning them. Lord, I pray that you would. Draw them to the cross. They would see that, that you will take their guilt, you will take their shame. If they confess you as Lord and believe in their heart that you raised them from the Christ from the dead, they will be saved. Lord, would you do that work? Would you give them confidence not in themselves, but in Christ? Come talk to me, talk to the lobby, or one of the pastors, or someone they know who came with them. In order that we could tell them how they can live a life without fear and following Christ. Lord, we ask that you would do that. And for those of us who have believed, Lord, you would strengthen our faith today. That no matter what awaits us this week, Lord, we'd have confidence in the cross and the resurrection. And that we'd come here next week, and the next week, and the next week, until you call us home, or you return. Lord, keep us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.